Hey everybody, it's Bevan. Uh, welcome to Bevan FM Over 40 and Her Friends Podcast with your host, me, Bevan. I've said my name three times, it's time to start the show. Um, I am recording this on the Thursday night that I am releasing it. I always do the podcast and release it Thursday nights. So it's on time for the morning commute on the East Coast. Um, that's kind of like always my goal. Um, I've never, I don't know that I've actually stated that ever on the podcast. I think maybe it just appears for those of you who are smart enough to have subscribed to this awesome podcast. And also welcome back to those of you who have joined me before. Um, I love sharing my friends with you. That's why I started this podcast. And also welcome to anybody who's new, who hasn't joined me on my podcast before. Um, today I get the rare privilege of getting to interview my friend Magali. I also call uh, Mags Mags. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll get to know Mags throughout the show. But we never talked about this during the interview. And I feel like I'm going to lead with this story. So Mags is on what we're calling a civilian deployment to Seattle. So a temporary move from Atlanta. Um, and about a month ago, Mags told me, Mags had just arrived to town um, and was like, I really was staying with a friend and um, had said, I really want to find a place that's a month to month lease that's furnished in Capitol Hill that I can afford. And it was just like, or that I can easily afford, I think is what Mags said and wrote it down. And then like maybe a week later, I, I heard from Mags that uh, Mags found this place, this actual place that, that was, uh, manifested just by writing it down. And you know, I love law of attraction stuff. And so I loved that so much that I like when I heard that, cause other people's wins make me really excited, especially my friends, right? Like I'm always rooting for everyone, but I really love when people like put their vision into the universe and that happens. And, um, so I t immediately told my therapist of all people and my therapist then turned around two weeks later and tells me during a session that, um, <laughs> He was inspired by my story about my friend Mags um, getting the apartment that uh, Mags just completely like manifested. And then my therapist went and did the same thing, wrote it down, got an awesome place in San Francisco. We tell a, we tell a commute or whatever, um, tell a appointment. Anyway, whatever. I'm just saying, write it down. I just want you to hear this story of possibility. Cause like when one thing happens for somebody, then everything else becomes possible for everyone else. You know what I mean? So just write it down, write down something you want and, uh, and just point, point the universe towards it and see what happens. Cause the worst that happens is you wrote something down and you got clear about a goal, right? But best case scenario, it totally happens like it did for Mags, who is currently at that awesome apartment in Capitol Hill. Anyway, so um, I'm so excited during uh, the time that Mags, who really lives in Atlanta, I mean, is an Atlanta friend, um, I'm getting to hang out more one-on-one -on -one and like in smaller groups when usually I only hang out with Magali when we're in Atlanta together and a whole big group of people. So it's kind of fun. It's like a new dimension of our friendship. And we talk a lot about um, queer, coming out, uh, being a veteran experience in the military, being the child of an immigrant. Um, my mom is also an immigrant. So I feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot of specific experience that I'm excited to talk about um, with Mags in this episode. But first, 
I got to thank some folks. So um, there are some folks who have joined my Patreon since we last spoke of it. Um, Patreon is a membership support site where folks can support creators they love creating work uh, in the world. This podcast is a product of my Patreon. Thank you so much to my Patreon supporters for helping make this world work possible and help to create this universe where I get to teach people about self-care and self-love and teach weekly online aerobics classes, which I love to do, some in the forest, some in a studio. There's always a 10-minute, a 20-minute, a 45-minute, and a 50- to 60-minute class available. And I just challenge you to hop in, start taking aerobics with me, and see what happens. Give yourself 90 days. But I have seen so many transformations from people who have come regularly to my class for a season in their life and just like experienced their body in a new way, started wanting to dance at wedding receptions where they had never danced in public before. Um, I've had people like come into their style through coming to my classes. I've had people come into their gender. I've had people come into their bodies and start really accepting the body that they have today. Um, people and also people like learning how to trust their bodies in new and different ways, just from dancing around and moving and being in an affirming body positive um, and flamboyant environment like back at dance party. So you can find all of that at patreon.com slash FKDP. And that's the weekly online aerobics class, which I'm super excited to welcome Jess from Berlin, Germany to the class. I'm so excited. We have multiple multinational uh, folks in the weekly online classes. And then Bree from Newton, Massachusetts. Um, love having someone near Boston uh, holding it down. Um, I'm very excited. Thank you. Welcome to the party, Jess and Bree. And then also supporting um, at the $5 level, we have Kara from Lakewood, Colorado, um, I have always wanted to go to Lakewood, Colorado. Um, I get a lot of mail from there because I think one of my credit cards is there. <laughs> and Rhea from Maine. So thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Um, if you hop over there, you also get some exclusive content from me, updates that I don't share anywhere else, and Bevan's Bites, which is a podcast of many episodes about self-love and self-care uh, with tools and meditations that I think might help you boss up in your life and have a better time in life. Um, I am so excited to welcome Max to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Max, welcome to my podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you and to share you with my audience of kindred spirits. Everyone, I'm so excited to introduce you to Mags, who is one of my dear friends from Atlanta, part of my hometown of choice, my home family of choice. Uh, if you listen to my podcast with Rachel, which I highly recommend, it was the first friend podcast I did on this podcast, and Rachel's amazing, and Rachel is how I know Mags or Magali, we can, you know, like... You go by both. Yeah, I have a lot of names I go by. It's, you do. It's kind of a Navy thing to have a lot of nicknames and have a lot of people call you different names. It's a thing. Mm. Yeah. A Navy thing, huh? I think so, yeah. Navy is definitely one of those places where everyone has a nickname. Is it like one specifically identified Navy nickname, or do they give you tons of nicknames and they just pick whatever? It depends on the person. You know, you have like, pilots have a call sign, so that's always, you know, one specific nickname they go by. But I definitely knew people that had multiple nicknames and people would call them different things because some folks, like, weren't a lot of funny stories and then that can give you a nickname because of the funny story that happened. Um, 
I had various nicknames, some of them just a combination of my last name and first name or my last name, and then some more specific to me, like my roommates would sarcastically call me sweat, sort of, because I would sweat things or be like concerned about things. So it'd be like this, no, don't sweat it, sweat, and then they'd like call me sweat. Oh, and then I call you sweat. Yeah. And only my roommates ever called me that because people, by and large, like me, but my roommates always picking on me. <laughs> and that's kind of a military thing, too. I was also the one that made sure we were ready for inspection, so there was the upside to my sweat. Yeah, absolutely. And they would you do know nothing. What? I would love calling you sweat just because, also, you're great on a dance floor. Thank you. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> like, you know, and you take uh, your physical wellness seriously, and so, you know, you do put a little sweat into things. Yeah, I think it's important to move, mm-hmm. uh, definitely, as I get older, but... I realized that I had an odd relationship with it. I was always an athlete growing up and then got to the Naval Academy where I experienced for the first time really difficult physical challenges that, you know, were just challenging. And now I can understand that it was because I'm I'm not very tall. I'm 5'3". <laughs> and a lot of those challenges were meant for people that were much taller and were more accessible and easier for them because they have a higher center of gravity, which means they can climb things more easily. And like, no one was really putting that in perspective or providing that perspective. And so I took it really harshly that I struggled to do certain things that were not my fault to struggle. You know, of course I would struggle because I'm short or, you know, not as strong as other folks necessarily doing certain things. Like I'm not going to do a lot of push-ups, like an extensive amount. Like I did enough, but to expect myself to do over a hundred was like probably not very realistic, but it felt like I should be able to meet that standard. And then I took it really harshly that I struggled and now I can look back and realize what I was able to accomplish, despite those expectations, was really impressive. I just didn't feel it at the time. And now I just like to move and, like, be consistent with my movement, but in really positive, like, you know, fulfilling ways like yoga mm-hmm. instead of being yelled at by other folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. It's not a real bunny. It's just a person named Bunny. Um, Joshua has a friend named Bunny, too. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how people can get really caught up in, like, uh expecting their bodies to conform to what everybody else is doing and also how these like standards are set that don't take into account body diversity or like because like the experience of doing floor-based like yoga for example Mm -hmm. is really different for a fat person because if you have more adipose tissue on your body you just have more body weight resistance which is a neutral thing here on this podcast we're very body neutral Mm -hmm. and it's a neutral thing to experience gravity differently, right? That's just, it's just, it's how just right. That's we're on how, the planet. yes, that and, is the physics of our world, uh-huh. but like that's normal, absolutely. Yeah, and like, and so, like in the Navy, like when they're expecting you to do mm-hmm. X number of push ups or pull ups or like mm-hmm. stuff where you're competing against or pitted next to five foot eleven men who have like different muscle mass, like right. it's a whole different experience. And so, it's so interesting how we get caught up in this one-size-fits-all world, when we are actually just human diversity, shows us how many different ways there are to be a human and that they're all okay. Absolutely. And the military was especially bad at that because there were height-weight standards that didn't take into account anything except for those two data points. And those two data points, excuse me, of course, are on such a spectrum for folks. And those two things individually and taken together can mean anything or nothing and it didn't have anything to do certainly they didn't measure how healthy you were or how able you were to um withstand or endure certain conditions or 
um, what it took to meet those data points and that that might be the unhealthy thing that you were doing for yourself is I knew folks absolutely that had to cut weight just to be within that height weight standard but were in very very good shape and were able to run faster and further than a lot of other people at whatever weight those folks were at that those things just have nothing to do with your abilities or your health level or um, how physically fit you are really you know that those standards come I think in all sizes and all different um, data points and so it was ridiculous that some folks had to just lose weight to be within those standards and I knew at least one football player who uh, had been an offensive lineman and was very large by nature and then had gotten bigger to be there and to actually play that sport and then by his senior year was not going to be able to meet those height weight standards and so he left the academy because he knew that if he graduated he wouldn't be able to be commissioned and to actually serve because he couldn't meet those height weight standards it was just not possible for his body to do that Wow. And he was a smart guy who was doing well and would have otherwise graduated, but I think he felt really ashamed, too, and bad about it, and he left. Wow. Left yeah. the Naval Academy. It was really, it was an odd place to be, and of course it had, yeah, a lot of those military body standards come with it, and <clears throat> not being integrated that long, I was there in the mid-90s. Women had only been there since 1976 was the first class, so the first graduating class was 1980, so a very small amount of time, and... I think even to this day, there are still sort of ridiculous notions about what is physically fit in the military and how to meet those standards, and then a reality and acceptance of the conditions that our service members are under, and that they likely aren't getting the best nutrition, and they aren't getting enough time to take care of their bodies the way that would be best with the, you know, best kinds of activities and um, considerations for the difficult working conditions they're under. Yeah, Totally. So what was your decision um, to go to the Naval Academy? Like, how did you do that? And how did that intersect with your young, queer, you know, sort of life? Yeah, well, so it started out that um, when I was really young, I was super masculine identified and very much like, oh, I'm a boy and not a girl. Those being the two choices I thought I was presented. And then at some point I eventually had to accept, I sort of felt um, outnumbered. (laughs) that everyone around me was so convinced and so I felt like I had no choice but then to accept it and then just sort of suppressed a lot of who I thought I was in lieu of who I was told I needed to be and then just became really focused on being a really good female athlete, you know, doing well in female sports because that's where it felt like I was allowed to be and be more of myself. And then I also cared a lot about my academics because my mother is... Um, of Cuban, you know, born and come here. Actually, it was just her anniversary to be here for 59 years um, on Valentine's Day. She came over at 15 after being in a forced labor camp and came here for freedom, you know, to get out from the dictatorship that Cuba had become and to have a better life and opportunities and, you know, not to have a family somewhere where it would be so difficult to survive. And so I have a deep appreciation for being American and that really led me to want to go to college and also do something, you know, to give back, and the military became that sort of combination that provided that, and a way to pay for college, and that's how I ended up at the Naval Academy. I'd suppressed my gender identity and how I wanted to express my gender. I was very clear, though, that I was attracted to women, and therefore, you know, queer, lesbian, gay, (laughs) whichever word, and then ended up not really considering what it would be like to serve under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and to serve under a discriminatory policy that was endorsed and, you know, 
the compromise that was supposed to make it somewhat better for folks to be able to serve even if they were gay as long as they stayed in the closet but that's not how it really applied and was implemented and it was still a way to go after folks and to um, get people kicked out of the navy and for some folks to volunteer and get out of the navy on their own because they wanted to or use that quite frankly i know some folks that use it and lied and said they weren't that said they were gay even though they weren't in order to get out of the navy and they use it sort of against the military for what you wouldn't expect <laughs> you know the purpose to be but folks did that and then people like me stayed in the closet to um, not be separated and not give up the career that I really thought could be a 20-year thing that I retired you know after being in the military with a really great um, ability to have enough money to help whatever I want to do next you know one of my mentors and one of the people that that was so instrumental in getting me into the Naval Academy had been an enlisted member of the military and the Navy and then became a teacher after that and did a whole career as a teacher and I thought that would be so amazing to get to do something like that retiring at 42 or 43 like I would have been able to <clears throat> like right now I could be retired and starting the next career if I'd stayed in the military but it just was too much of a burden and so it was a time that I'm grateful that I went and I got to go and have those experiences and then also it was a huge um at a huge detriment sometimes because it didn't allow me to be fully myself and experience the world the way I might have preferred because I had to pretend I was someone that I wasn't. Yeah. And you, like, how long were you in the military? I did four years at the academy and then five years active duty on two different ships um, with a small brief stay at nuclear power school where I didn't make it through. <laughs> and then... Um, three years in the reserves while I was going through law school. So eight years altogether after graduating from the Naval Academy. So 12 years of military life, basically. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. Because you have four years in the Academy. That's quite an impressive career. Yeah, and it could have been longer, I think, if, yeah, but for some <laughs> factors. And I miss it sometimes still, being on the water and having a team and working together towards a common goal and having a really immersive work environment that becomes, you know, sort of like family and very um, collaborative and engaged and, and tribal, you know, mm -hmm. really having that um, aspect of being, having to be really focused because it really is life and death and it's the only job I've ever had that was actually le legitimately uh, life or death at times if you, you know, made poor decisions or if you stopped paying attention or... Um, if you were negligent, certainly I was a surface warfare officer, and so I drove ships or was in charge of the ship, um, telling others, you know, what to do with the engines and um, the helm, and I was a navigator on my second ship, and so actually maintaining the safety of the ship and its crew, and there was something, you know, really fulfilling about that. Yeah. Um, did you consider becoming a military lawyer and joining JAG or doing anything like that? No, by the time that I decided I wanted to get out and go to law school, um, I was pretty adamant that I didn't want to stay in. I even considered not doing the reserves and then chose to because uh, I happened to find a really good unit to be a part of. But I didn't want to uh, owe the military more time and I didn't want to be in the closet you know, much longer and that, that was going to be the challenge for me. And I was very lucky, <clears throat> like I said, to find that unit that I did because I was concerned about being in Atlanta and wanting to be out 
and wanting to, you know, not have to pretend anymore and like finally cutting my hair and being more expressive of who I wanted to be and um, not having then the military folks still find out because Don't Ask, Don't Tell stayed in effect until 2011. Mm-hmm. And so I got out well before that. This was 2007 is when I got out. And so it was still very possible that I could be in town with my girlfriend, which I did have at the time, and see someone that I served with and be outed. Luckily, I ended up in a really small um, reserve unit of other service members, um, actually, or other, they were not, none of them were in the Navy. And so it felt like I was a little safer to um, keep all those folks at arm's length while, um, you know, doing the small thing I did twice or every weekend and then twice a, two weeks a year. Wow. But I was willing to not do reserves at all if it meant that I could be out where I didn't have to worry about um, still being separated or the rest of the So did you, so what was your coming out process like? So it ended up being pretty um, non <laughs> a non-event by the time it happened because um, I lived with a girlfriend for about a year before I finally told my mom, <laughs> and she'd kind of figured it out by then and wasn't surprised, and it was definitely a time where my mom thought that I had been queer. My sister thought that I was queer, too, at a much younger age. I just didn't feel safe enough to like talk about it and admit it. And so for my family, at least, because I did, I think, identify at least like a tomboy and played sports and even though my hair was longer and I had somewhat of a more feminine presentation, I was still, I think, in my family's eyes, that very, like, you know, boyish child that I was. And so they were very like, oh, yeah, of course we knew. It's fine. My mom has been always really super supportive. And um, everyone in my family, you know, that mattered <laughs> enough has been and was super supportive. And so... It was an easy coming out. I was also, you know, 25. And so I didn't think it's also evident to me as I get older that I did feel really unsafe for a really long time. And so even though maybe it wouldn't have been a surprise at any point in my life, I wasn't ready to like talk about it or admit it to anybody outside of a very select few people because it just didn't feel safe since when I was a kid and I tried to, I tried to find ways to talk about it. Everyone was so adamant that I wasn't who I thought I was. Then I didn't, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't able to assert that then until I was much older and start to express myself, um, as more as, you know, I feel who I am instead of who I thought I was told I had to be. Oof, so real. Yeah. I thought I was who I was told to be. So interesting. I can totally identify with that. Like, that's kind of like how I ended up in law school. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Because, okay. like, people kept telling me I should be a lawyer. I'd be great at being a lawyer. And eventually, like, that brainwashing worked when I needed mm-hmm. an excuse to not go try to find a job and fail at that. So, But they weren't wrong. You are a great lawyer. I mean... You're very good at that. I guess wanted so. to be. Yeah. <laughs> not something just, sustainable that you want to do, but not yeah. because you weren't good at it. <laughs> That's true, actually. I was a great lawyer. I just hated other lawyers and the yeah. environment and who... Well, wears you out. It's exhausting. Yeah, I and it, find it that too. <laughs> makes you be like, because like law is based on things that are really hard, like arguing, needing to be right. When in fact, mm-hmm. teaching you to be a lawyer is teaching you to see all sides and see how everything is right. And like, but it's like, then also litigators are nasty and terrible people. Yeah, so. it becomes an adversarial process, yeah. even if it doesn't have to be. Some of the jerks that are lawyers make it so, and actually then get rewarded for being that way. 
and then are successful and so then they do it more and it makes it the whole process be like oh, I don't want to deal with you even though I'm a lawyer yeah absolutely it mm-hmm. does it, it, it's like a pool full of toxic bullshit and yeah. then you're like but I can't keep my side of the pool free from the toxic bullshit because it's just no. all part of the water you have to really have some ability to balance out a lot of that if, and especially depending on you know the level of prestige that you want to achieve and then of course that comes with the dollar amounts that allow the self-care you need but if you don't get that like our public defender friends mm. they're working so hard and they're doing such important work and yet of course they're exhausted and struggling to live because they get paid so little and they have such high expectations i had a very dear friend that would have a caseload of 200 cases well, that's not I fair mean, to impossible. the people who need a great lawyer because a lawyer sure. cannot a caseload of 200 cases is an unfair burden on anyone. You can't know the Impossible. facts of everything. You can't represent someone adequately. You can't that. calendar that. You no. can't. That's just You can't too even, much. like, actually calendar that. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have time. And then, of course, everything's changing all the time, and you're pressed from all sides. So, yeah, no, it's too much. And, oh. and then I think, like, that's what our government does sometimes, at least in the South, on purpose, mm-hmm. to disadvantage the folks they'd rather be able to continue to use in the prison industrial complex now that is a real problem of these for-profit imprisonment camps yeah. like it's just not okay these institutions that are meant to imprison and like immigrants are being used for that right now as well yeah it's all just forced labor which is just newfound- newfangled slavery if you haven't seen the movie 13 or is it 13th oh i haven't seen on this. netflix oh my god it's so good it's oh. basically about how um, slavery was abolished and the prison industrial complex came up and the war on drugs Absolutely. just basically like put tons and tons of black and brown people behind bars and has turned it into forced labor. It will really, it's a very, very good and important documentary on Netflix, 13th, I think is what it's called, because it's based on the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. Um, dogs yipping in my neighborhood. Well, I bet there's going to be a dog barking report filed. <laughs> Someone will hear about this. Because HOAs, that's what happens. You have, to, you have yeah. to agree that other folks get to complain about whatever they want to complain about. Yeah, it's true. I mean, just because there's a, a dog barking report doesn't mean that anything happens, right? Like, no, it just gets noted and uh-huh. someone's like, oh, yep, that happened. It's a file. Is there, is there an ability to say, yes, I, I admit it happened and dog is really upset and apologize if you're barking? Like, what is the remedy? given to you for the report i have no idea actually i don't i don't know the results of these things but i know no. things get filed you know and like, <laughs> just gets filed it okay. gets filed and people are and okay. every now and again there's a group facebook chat for my women's land that i live on and every now and again someone will complain about the barking quote-unquote in an open forum in that forum and, okay well, uh, at least from the tribal perspective it's uh-huh. important that you can talk about things uh-huh air out things that might be upsetting to any one person or activating, as we might say. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets that part of your brain sort of going that you are upset about something someone else is doing that should matter because mm-hmm. you want to matter. That's important to us. Yeah. I think it's great that there's a process to discuss it. That way voices can be heard. That's important. Complaints can be registered, but also it is a dog-friendly community. And so a lot of dogs. And dogs bark. Everyone has dogs. And they all bark. Yeah. I think everyone can understand that. Yeah. And it's like not everyone has dogs, but if you move in expecting it to be silent, like... So, here's the next level, yeah. maybe, okay. communal living. Uh-huh. You've got the dog part, where everybody barks, nobody should complain about that. Uh-huh. Then the cat part, mm. where everyone's in their cat sort of homes, and they can hear the dog barking, but maybe only in the far enough distance, mm. where it doesn't bother them, but then they can have more of, like, 
the dog barking free environment they want. I mean, I think a quiet zone where perhaps like no children get to visit, right? Like noise making. We love that. Yeah. Right. Like a whole quiet part, I think would Mm -hmm. be an ideal sort of thing. Mags and I have been talking a lot today about intentional communities and creating them. I wouldn't call where I live an intentional community and that's a threshold that I hold very high. Yes. We're talking Um, about a slightly different thing, which I love. And I love the idea of too. That's what I want is an intentional community, community chickens. And then a really, I think, value-guided, instead of a, we all live here and want to complain and, like, tell each other what we can and can't do, you buy in knowing that these are the values we want to guide us and that we want to be led by, and so we already know we're more hopefully well-aligned and then can have, in my mind, part of that intention is also, like, some freedom because I need to, like, part of my safety and happiness for my attachment system is being in full dominion over some aspect of my environment yeah and so in owning property even if what i want to paint my house is an eyesore to others i need that right to make my property an eyesore because it pleases me Mm, absolutely that's important to me yeah there's a whole committee here dedicated to keeping (laughs) people from having eyesores so see that's the and i yeah i told the one that was one of my few like requirements when i bought a house was i will not live under the oppression of an HOA. Yeah. I accept the government oppression, state and federal, even the county, because that's what we have. Yeah. Um, where I lived in Atlanta, it was not uh, the city of Atlanta. It was like, you know, uh, unincorporated part of a county. And that was my most favorite because it's least burdensome on the local level. Oh, totally. I like that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about attachment systems? You know a lot about attachment. You love attachment. I really do. Um, this is an important, to me, it's, it's the vital missing piece of our development as humans. And, um, when we talk about adulting and being good adults and, um, managing our reactions and impulses and, um, being healthy in our communication and how we interact with others and then of course then being proper models for children what we have to be understanding of and in mastery of is our attachment system which is the really primitive part of our brain that evolve or is part of our evolution and part of us being helpless babies (laughs) that cannot fend for ourselves unlike other species which have a greater ability to more quickly be on their own take care of themselves human beings not so, right? If we don't have someone to feed us and um, clothe us and keep us warm and protected from the elements and not even just our basic needs, but even giving us cuddling, right? And physical touch because babies that are not touched and are not well cared for from a physical touch perspective do not thrive. We know that from studies. And so there's a part of our brain that um, seeks to help us survive by getting us to cry and, and protest and make ourselves seen and heard so that some other human being or creature will take us and take care of us and nurture us. And so that attachment system that's there throughout our, you know, immediately when we're born and therefore actually in the womb even sooner at some point when our brain is, you know, becoming our brain um, and doing the things that a brain does, we come out and instantly our attachment system is helping us be cared for and nurtured and um, sustained, it doesn't go away as we get older. And so 
there were studies that began by looking at toddlers and what their attachment system, um, how they were experiencing it and how they were adapting to their environment as toddlers, 18 month old babies to like 24, seeing how they would act when their parent or, you know, their typical caregiver would leave them with a stranger and how they would respond. And each of us shows an adaptation as early as that age and even earlier of either um, secure, anxious, um, avoidant, or sort of a combination of those other two. And so of anxious and avoidant, and so a combination sort of in um, one that's less sort of uh, static. And as we get older, our adaptation style can change and can be impacted and um, regulated, but also changed by the things that happen to us and traumatic things that happen like loss of a parent or loss of a sibling or loss of some close, you know, loved one, um, a divorce, you know, a sudden change in circumstances, you know, really things that cause an abusive parent or a negligent parent or um, a parent who's sick all the time or, you know, a parent that's absent, a parent that has to work and is just away from the home, you know, a parent that's in a, is um, too reactive when they are home from a lot of, you know, conditions that happen. And so I wish a lot sooner I'd understand that this um, part of our brain is constantly driving us to feel safe and belong and matter by helping us try to get those needs met, but sometimes in not so helpful ways. And so it's stuff that we can talk about for a long time. I recommend everybody like Google that sort of stuff. It's like look at attachment system adaptations and take quizzes to figure out if you're in the secure, hopefully about half of us are in the secure attachment um, adaptation um, where typically we feel good about the world and it being a safe place for us and um, we feel pretty good about ourselves and you know know that people have to treat us well or we don't have to be with them and then the rest of us Wait, leave. you think that <laughs> half the people in America have a secure attachment system? Um, I don't know about America. It says in the population, <laughs> but it, it can really depend a lot on what's happened to folks. And so this might be a time right now where more folks are not exhibiting secure attachment yeah. adaptations. <laughs> but psychologists or, you know, the, the studies show that about half people are and then, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the other half are in the other three. But the thing about it is that it's not permanent. And so mm-hmm. that's what the good news, right, is that even if because reasonable things have happened to you, because we all make sense. That's the other thing we need to know about attachment um, system adaptations. There's not a bad one. It's not that because, like me, I have more of an avoidant attachment adaptation, which makes sense because of my childhood and my experiences and generational trauma and my mom and what she went through and how I experienced, you know, my environment and my gender identity, you know, trying to get um, seen and heard and so many things that come together to, you know, formulate who we are and how we experience the world all makes sense. I can work with it. And through my understanding of it and ability to communicate more effectively with nonviolent communication to get needs met and express those needs and even acknowledge them and take responsibility for them. So you're not putting it on somebody else. Then I can, and I have, I think, hopefully made progress in having more of a secure adaptation style where I'm able to not be upset and protest behavior in a negative, you know, unhelpful and unskillful way, but instead talk to my partner about, you know, why I'm feeling jealous or why I'm feeling lonely or um, anxious or activated or, you know, upset when I normally wouldn't be or, you know, because the same thing happened that actually does upset me every time, you know. 
being able to talk about that and express that, then you can manage your attachment system in more skillful ways to find better relationships. And by better, I just mean that they're more, more um, fulfilling and helpful and helping you feel comforted and secure and encouraged and loved, like basically, right? That's what our attachment system is really just trying to get us to feel loved and safe and like we belong in the tribe. Yeah, that's totally. where our safety comes from as babies and as grown-ups because we're tribal like we were talking about earlier it's all about being a, you know about who we are as a species we're yeah. very tribal we are very tribal humans really need other human connection and accountability and all of that and yeah. we've left that so far behind because you know consumerism wants us to consume more and when you're tribal you need less because there's more communal resources yeah, and, and it's better for your survival to need less and use less and reutilize more. And yeah, what we can definitely take from our ancestors, and there's so much we ought to, I think, is that we're not meant to be toiling all the time. That isn't what helps us be um, motivated to work hard. If all you have to do is keep working harder when you work hard, then it gets really exhausting where... Our ancestors focused on hunting and gathering as needed, but then conserving as much as possible and being smart about how they can they consumed so that they wouldn't have to be toiling all the time because that's when you're more vulnerable then to and to sickness or to attacks, you know, or to whatever um, environment things you have to deal with. And so we're silly to want to continue to consume more and to find more ways to have more stuff to maintain when that's a really a path to burnout as we experience and lawyers right especially like we're such an we're in so many um overlapping intersections of burnout and unsustainability right and capitalism already puts us in a big box of that for sure but yeah being lawyers like our profession has a really awful um rate of folks that you know, a high rate of people that burn out and, like, really actually, like, hurt four, themselves, right? Four like, times the national suicide rate for lawyers. It's not... So you just start out, like, with this, like, regular suicide rate, right, just as being, like, a human being in, a, in the U.S., right, right? Right, And then you add being queer to that, and then we've yeah. got a higher suicide rate. Um, and then if you're a person who's gender nonconforming, you're going to add some more, like, suicidality to that. Um, if you're a person like me and you are lucky enough to win the genetic lottery with like chronic depression and mental illness stuff, mm-hmm. like that is added to it. Plus then being a lawyer four times a national races. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's rough. <laughs> no. And that's exactly why I think it's so awesome that you spend so much time and, and energy and really share that with others too. Those, um, really wonderful ways to help make the experience better and life better and to have more energy then to help sustain you when you have to like manage all the other stuff because yeah our society is sort of built to be exhausting and then of course we're exhausted and then we feel bad about being exhausted when of course we are why wouldn't we be yeah totally oh my god yeah yeah and so at least as we get older let's have those communities where we can work together and you know lessen the burdens we have more enjoyment time like i want to spend more time doing puzzles like fun games and eating delicious food and listening to music and dancing around and hot tubbing and stuff same yeah Yeah. we all deserve to get to have those lives like lives that are enriched and then also um and still like doing work that improves the world like i think it can all happen like we can heal 
and we can also work to make the world better and contribute in ways that make us feel fulfilled and awesome. And yeah, it's all possible. Yeah. Um, Max, will you talk about polyamory and your experience maybe coming out as poly? I mean, you've had a lot of coming out. Yeah. So, okay. Another, along with attachment system, you know, awareness and understanding and management, the second major prong of where my life could have really been hugely improved a lot sooner even is understanding and being aware of and knowing about and seeing modeling for ethical non-monogamy or what some folks do call polyamory. And then there's a lot of, you know, different forms and um, descriptions for how people live and do polyamory and do ethical non-monogamy. I like to say ethical non-monogamy to be really clear about the things that are important to me, which is that it's really honest and direct and people are, you know, aware of it immediately, not, you know, after we've been seeing each other for a while or after, you know, we've gotten to know each other in some way, but from the very beginning and then that I don't expect to be with just one person, even though I really love commitment and enjoy being in committed relationships. Um, I realize that it's not likely for me to want to be in just one of those relationships. And I didn't find out about ethical non-monogamy or polyamory at all until I was in law school and I met Rachel and happily, very happily so, because it was a huge life-changing, um, game changer <laughs> type of moment for sure. And I read Ethical Slut, which I always recommend, although it's been updated, I think, and changed, and there's some things in there probably that I might be more, um, curious about and activated by and would maybe not agree with. So More Than Two is a better book I would recommend more so right now. More Than Two? Yeah, More okay. Than Two. Um, that's really about, I think, what also is, for me, very important this time around. Although in 2006, when I learned first about um, polyamory and non-ethical, or ethical non-monogamy, was um, that there was a very hierarchical sort of um, model that I was aware of and that I understood to be sort of more of the norm or the um, what I, what people around me were doing, let's just say, you know, sort of a norm within the small folks and subset that I knew of. And then now more recently I'm into, I much more, um, subscribe to an idea of it not being hierarchical and so, you know, honest and open and more than one person <laughs> basically. And so if we take away all the definitions and all the verbiage and all the words and, I think it just means for me that, like, um, I like to be able to have the relationships that I want to have and get to define with that other person what it is that we want to have as a relationship and then have other folks that I'm connected to accept that I'm going to have the relationship with other people that I want to have and I'm going to be honest with it and, of course, everyone gets to make their own decision about what they accept and what they want to be a part of, but I'm not going to be very willing to have someone else decide for me what my relationship should be with someone else. But people can decide what they want relationships to be with me, and if they want to say yes based on how I'm conducting myself. Um, I just don't want the expectation anymore that someone else can tell me what those relationships have to be, and so that's what polyamory is about for me, at least now, and then, yeah, first time I sort of learned about it was 2006, and then I promptly went back to <laughs> uh, monogamy almost immediately um, a few months later and then did monogamy for a really long time on and off sort of when I was dating various people 
and then more recently um, I think realized and decided that for sure in 2016 that it was going to be what made sense to me going forward and kind of permanently and just more about who I am and finally accepting that it's what made sense to me because it would have been best from the beginning but you know I just didn't hear about it or know about it until I was much older and so I think it's really important that we begin to have an understanding that there's nothing weird about polyamory it's actually the other way around our ancestors um, when they were still hunters and gatherers and not focus on agricultural dominance and having a certain amount of property and then figuring out who was your property along with that kind of you know land property right. um, we were our ancestors were not monogamous and it was again a, a tribal aspect where it didn't make sense to be with any just one person or to act like there was you know only one person that can help you with your child when the whole tribe accepted that everybody was going to be taken care of and you were going to work together because you couldn't survive without each other and so women and men you know we would expect and you know um for them to identify at the time possibly like had sex with whomever they wanted to and then had children by whomever and it didn't matter which one exactly was um, the father because it was part of the tribe and everyone was going to take care of each other's kids and I recommend Sex at Dawn as a really incredible book that talks about how we evolved and that even though we started to model ourselves more after chimpanzees we're actually much more closer to bonobos and bonobos do not have a patriarchy and do not have um, monogamy or not even monogamy right because that's not what chimps do much more like men just rape women it's awful um bonomos don't do that they have sex like as a um part of an intimate sort of like tribal connection and um they are they um, have face-to-face -face sex actually where chimpanzees do not and so there's they're more of a matriarchal kind of or uh, woman focus like women do more of the work and are more in charge of things because men are really just about the sex but they get as much sex or more than they want because they're not responsible for handling anything but they also don't have like they don't do well by being aggressive they're actually it's a whole different um, uh, energy that they display and so <laughs> the fact that we've um, now had a much more prescribed and you know property-based monogamy structure is a much more recent development and we pretend or act and people act as if polyamory is the weird thing and it's quite the opposite as far as how long folks have been having you know relationships <laughs> and how long they've been you know um the way they have been now which is just very recent and i really think that like poly stuff is similar to sexuality it's just on a spectrum and like people when we're, you're <laughs> raised in like a heterosexist monogamous fat phobic you know white patriarchal heteropatriarchy all of that stuff right like that kind of like curtails your natural exploration of who you are and what you want and I feel like I'm really excited now to see more and more people talking about their polyamorous relationships and talking about um, what kinds of relationship structures they're creating and forming and I think more and more as we continue to shift the culture into a broader awareness of what's possible people will settle into what comes naturally for them rather than just feeling like oh I have to be monogamous because everybody else is or I have to be monogamous because I mean a lot of people it's like part of your compatibility right like with someone um, like especially like with queer dating it's like there's like big 
it, there's like compatibilities based on whether or not you have or want kids. That's and huge. there's yeah, and that's huge. And then there's compatibility about whether you have or want polyamory or at some level of ethical non-monogamy. And then um, I think the other thing is like geographically, like where do you want to live, like and mm-hmm. like how do you want to live, and those are big things that you know mm-hmm. people have to grapple with. And then also allergic to cats. I feel like the cat, <laughs> cat allergy that is, is big, huge. Is That's big true. Thing. <laughs> yeah, there. I know some folks that that would be a deal breaker. They'd be like, "Oop, can't work because I've got to have a cat or many, many cats." My mom's spouse is still for they've been together almost twenty years, and she takes. Uh, allergy medicine to this day because she lives with cats because she loves my mom and loves the cats. So, yeah, you know. no, I think that's, and then you figure out people definitely can find the combinations, but it's, yeah, it's a discussion. Mm-hmm. I think another major category for folks, especially queer folks, because of the complications that come with being queer often is family connection and family relationship and how those, the family interference that can happen or the, the family dynamic and um, family, you know, compatibility and like, do you need to live close to your family? Does your family drive you crazy? Do you love your family? Do you love your family too much? Do you want to spend too much time with your family? Does your family, you know, drive you insane, but you also like won't check them? Are they going to be like crappy to me all the time? This happens with like Spanish folks. Are they going to like talk shit about me every single time? Like I'm around and I have to pretend like I can't hear them and you're not going to check them because you can't check your Spanish like family that will give you a really hard time if like your girlfriend or wife, like, you know, can't take being picked on and like you just expect to be, you know, like there's some, it's complicated. Yeah, absolutely. It's so complicated. <laughs> it can be very complicated. Oh. But that family like dynamic, you know, or I don't know if you do, but I, I do know some queer folks that like, at least when they started first dating a partner, they might say like, well, I don't want to date someone that isn't out to their family. And then they find that perfect person that isn't out to their family and they have to decide whether they're going to still date them. And the most, by and large, folks I know continue dating them even then it becomes as like a resentful spot for them. They don't want to break up the person because they know it's not their fault sort of in some ways that they're not out to their family, but it does sort of come up against one of their boundaries because it often means you have to not be out to some extent. Right. And like you can't claim that relationship and can't feel, you know, you also can't totally feel your feelings, which is like, well, this is not okay with me. Like that makes it really complicated. Family stuff is always so complicated. I think like I genuinely miss, um, my recent ex-partner's family, I loved them a lot, and I really felt like I was part of the family, and it feels hard that, like, you know, the breakup happened, and, like, I don't get to be in their lives anymore. And, like, I mean, part of that is my choice, right? Like, I could probably reach out to them, but I just think it's weird. I don't want to see pictures of my ex-partner with her new partner if she doesn't even want to be my friend, right? Like, yeah. I don't... No, I understand. That. Yeah. So, it's, like, it's sucky how, like, breakups are in these multi-layered things, and... It's hard when you don't get to connect with someone's family, although not everyone wants to connect with in-laws and that yeah. kind of thing. And there's another time our attachment system is at play and involved. There's that part of our brain um, that hasn't completely adapted to a more modern lifestyle where when we initially evolved, being so dependent on that tribal structure, you couldn't just cut somebody off and be like, oh, you're dead to me, which is kind of what our relationships now have evolved to almost usually, I know most people don't stay in touch with their exes and they're like, no, no, it's like they don't even exist anymore. Back in the day, we couldn't have that same mentality because you were still working very closely with that person in your tribe. Mm-hmm. And so the modern, you know, change to that makes it really difficult for our primitive brain 
to be okay with it. And for a long time, I think I struggled with that because I stayed very close to my exes again, since I was especially poly. I think that makes it make more, even more sense. But for me, it felt more comforting to still have them in my life and be close to them, but not be romantic anymore than to completely act like they didn't exist anymore and ignore them or just completely stop talking to them when I guess most of the time I was dating somebody that was pretty like cool just not compatible but so many people I know like do not it's like a rule for them even if the ex was wonderful they like just cannot at all talk to them and that for me is pretty odd yeah that's hard but I'm poly (laughs) I mean it's true and I think like but you know like I think there's a lot of monogamous people out there who can be friends with their exes some folks yeah some folks do but it's not the that's not the norm norm, right Yeah. yeah well because it requires you to treat conflict as a growth experience rather than mm. a cutoff experience which I'll, I have to say as someone who's set boundaries and has definitely grown my way through and away from toxic people who were not good for me or like whatever I think that there's places for like people being in your life for a season and not a lifetime but like I think I think it to me it's preferential to be friends with exes and to connect and to to maintain the things that I can still receive and understand the love that many of my exes have for me and appreciate it and like welcome it into my life versus like needing them just because they didn't you know like like what like as though me now is a good match for them now you know assuming that that is going to be true while also still holding out hope and maintaining uh, a preference for having a lifetime relationship even still in this lifetime and wanting to have a marriage and work towards having a really good fulfilling you know marriage in whatever form of I don't know I think I'm much more we talked about this last night but I'm much more of a non-monogamy sort of monogamish sort of person it's just in terms of how I like to couple and connect rather than just like straight up poly and like having a lot of things going on I don't know I'm busy yeah and so that's the thing is you know I, I think um it's an, another time where it can be very, very broad or some folks tend to think of like these specific categories or specific um, formulations of being poly where in my mind it's, an, it's another time where our conception, um, just our concept of a relationship and even what monogamy means, you know, some folks can mean very strictly that means you only get to like partner with one person romantically and that's like the only relationship they get to take up any time or space and then you get to have kids and that's it you get to have kids uh-huh. and you have children and you might have a little bit of connection through other close family members and a couple of like work colleagues but that's it and you don't get to have like close friendships that you spend a lot of time on or that are in any way intimate or like really close because your partner has to be your best friend and like that's all you get and then there's lots of folks i think that say they're monogamous but have very close like same gender friendships or you know opposite gender friendships or people they're very intimate with or a sibling that they're like obsessed with which I'm obsessed with like my sister like we're very close and like talking to each other a lot and um you know most of my partners have to even in the past when I was monogamous and was only dating one partner they had to accept that I had a lot of people in my life and I wasn't one of those like you're my everything and I only have time for you even though I'm gonna spend a lot of time on you I have time for other things and so I sometimes think that we've just made up these, you know, arbitrary sort of, um, parameters for what it means to be, you know, cisgender and heterosexual and gay or lesbian, all these words, like, 
we talk about the Mesosian on a spectrum, I think it's not even a spectrum. I think it's more of just like, there's a whole world of experience to have, but we come up with these concepts that limit those experiences or tell you what those experiences mean or what categories they go into or which ones are more favorable than others or which ones are more honorable than others, which ones are more ethical than others. And we just made all that up. (laughs) We made all that up and then we've already made it up before we even get to find out which of those experiences we want to have and enjoy. And then it's all then seen through that gen- that filter and that's why most recently now what I've really I think evolved to understand is that so much of what we're doing is performative and we can't separate how much we do those things by how much we do them innately because of who we are or who it is we are by nature and we do them because of what we've learned and internalized and been messaged about and you know understood about the concepts presented to us or than some of the experience that we've had and then that becomes who we think we are but there's no way to have a separation from being told so much about those things you know totally okay so max we're getting close to the end of the episode but i gotta let you have a little airtime to talk about why you love senator warren for president and you know what what the people should know from your perspective about this presidential yeah election well, okay. Well, there can't <laughs> it can't be overestimated how important this election is. And no matter whom the candidates are that eventually end up on the ballot, I will say it doesn't really matter. Um, we're going to the ballot in November on the 3rd to decide whether or not we're going to hold on to our constitutional democracy or if it's completely okay that the rule of law Uh, be subverted and um, killed by this administration and the executive department and uh, Senate Republicans um, because checks and balances and our Constitution and whether they're just words on a paper or if they stand for um, a democracy that can hold its public officials and its elected officials responsible and accountable for their oaths so you have to vote. Everyone has to vote. And I implore you, I beg you, I beg you to vote for the Democrats because these Republicans have been compromised uh, by the Russians ever since the summer of 2016. And they're definitely compromised by the authoritarian um, president who um, does not believe in our constitutional democracy, doesn't even understand necessarily the Constitution or what it says. and isn't necessarily smart enough to understand um, and hold more than one very basic thought in his mind at a time, but even if you could explain it to him, he certainly doesn't believe anyone should be able to tell him what to do or that his interests should ever be second um, to any, you know, idea of a government or a democracy. He's just only learned that he should get to do whatever he wants, and so you have to vote this fall, you have to vote for Democrats. I would also have you consider that Senator Warren has accomplished more than anyone else on the stage, and I even include uh, Vice President Biden in this. Um, When the banks were completely um, compromising our way of life and crashing our economy because of their greed and their ability to um, use loopholes and their understanding of, you know, unregulated 
banking, <laughs> um, you know, again, concepts that we've made up. They've been able to, they were able to um, create the bubbles that then, of course, were going to explode. And then we decided they were too big to fail. All that was going on. Uh, Senator Warren understood what was happening. And she has an incredible ability to um, understand how those in power and those in certain corporate interests can leverage their resources and do it very legally because that's she's well she's a lawyer too right and she's um a law professor <laughs> she's a, <laughs> so this is her specialty um and so i respect that obviously for my own reasons you know i think she has a unique understanding and unique ability to hold certain entities including um, big banks and you know those that are um sometimes able to overcome our interests as consumers, you know, and that's why I see FBP um, was such a big deal that she was able to head an entire agency meant to check those corporate interests and meant to check the big guys that are able to overrun us and to, you know, overcome, um, let's say, our interest in, like, you know, having uh, more accessible medicine. <laughs> you know, big pharma is able to overwhelm and really buy our legislature and have their interests served before ours. Senator Warren has been a figure um, who's been able to succeed against all odds and win in those kind of fights and start to hold those folks accountable and has continued that work as um, senator. But it's also about where she came from and her understanding, you know, of her parents who both worked very hard and then becoming a teacher and then eventually a law professor and then eventually you know, running an agency and then understanding, I think, uh, the values and the principles that matter over pleasing certain corporate interests or not standing up to a certain bully. She just, to me, is the, the right candidate to do what needs to be done next, which is preserve our democracy, undo so much of the damage that's been done in almost four years of this administration and these Senate Republicans. And it does matter that she has plans that are viable and they don't have to be perfect plans. Um, you can always make plans better as you get more information, but you've got to start with some idea of how to tackle this ten-headed beast that's ahead of us. And Senator Warren has already proven that she has that ability and is going to continue to do that. Amazing. Fully agree. And also love having my smart friends come and explain that stuff. Thank you so much, Max, for being on my podcast. I love and appreciate you so much. You're just so smart and just well thought out and I'm glad that you shared all this stuff and I hope it helps somebody out there know and feel seen more worthy have a new understanding of maybe their life and um, how they can be in the world yeah well, thank you so much I've been so happy to be here with you as always and you inspire and um, help me every single day so thank you Aww. for sharing your light and energy with us oh thanks I love you love you